Damien, pleasure. Um, thanks for joining us. You know, I do really appreciate it. This is Engineers. We're here to talk to the guys at uh, Zero a little bit about um, what they're doing, what they're building. The IM space, IAM space, excuse me, is massive. Um, security is obviously absolutely paramount at the moment. So keen to explore a little bit about what you do, how you do things. So do you want to give us an intro into you, the life of Damien, the life at Odd Zero, and what the last seven years has looked like? Do you want to just set the scene for us? Yeah, happy to. So thanks, Elliot, for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, let's see quickly. So Odd is an identity as a service platform. We make it easy for application builders to while working on their application, implement the login box. If you're trying to get your end users to log in with Google or Facebook or with uh, an enterprise identity provider, typically maybe an Active Directory, etc., we make that a lot easier. You pay for a subscription and you quickly get up and running. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have been an Otsido from the early days. I'm like engineer five, employee 10-ish. Wow. And uh, over, the, over the past few years, I've, I've been doing a variety of things. I, I started as a, an engineer, which meant basically everything on engineering, so support, uh, some marketing work, going to, to sales conversations. Uh, I, I spent a couple of years as a director of engineering, working both with our product engineering teams and our platform engineering teams. And now I'm a principal engineer working on our general architecture. Okay. All right. Um, what what have those seven years been like? Uh, that that's a vague question. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about being engineer number five, employee number ten. Talk to us a little bit about that, and maybe what the vision or the product looked like back then, and maybe your role and some of that growth. The the vision was, I think, always the same. And, and one of the things the, the two founders uh, from Otsiro always said is like, we, we are not in it to get to any particular financial goal, right? It's not to sell this. It's not to IPO. It's to create a company where people want to work, where we want to go work. And at the same time, it was very clear that there was a big, huge market for this problem. Because as, as you saw, in the past, in the years before it started, uh, you could see companies go more towards the cloud, towards the internet, towards mobile applications, and, and that means going away from like BP, VPN access and, and firewalls and basically trusting everything inside your network, which made identity a lot bigger. So in, in the early days when, when I started, when, when we were a much smaller team, we, we always had that vision of what we're doing is very valuable. We're, we're making the internet safer. It's part of making the internet safer, but that's what we're doing. And, and we always thought that this could have a huge impact. Fortunately, again, through a combination of probably both ha- hard work and luck, it, it has yeah. continued to be the case. Okay. You create your own luck. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, technically, talk to us about some of the changes or even just give us maybe some high-level overview of maybe what the product looked like then and maybe in ways what the product looks like right now that's going to be vast to the now but just talk to us about that evolution a number a number of things not really have changed over the years from a a philosophy of building that you go from that uh like move fast and break things type of way of of getting things done towards uh move fast and break nothing and that was a big change. And maybe in the early days, you would get feedback from customers, either through support tickets, through chat or, or anything like that. And you might be able to put together a small version of a feature and get it out there in a couple of hours. And that's great because at, at the beginning, that's what, what you're trying to get is traction. You're trying to get buy-in. You're trying to get more and more customers to validate your idea. Mm. But of course, you can't continue to do that as you grow because it means that you're not thinking about the product holistically and you might be thinking too short term. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a big, a big change over, like, again, I, I think starting maybe 20, 2016 when we started seeing, hey, 
a lot of people are depending on this now. We we have this running in now again at that point it was the US uh, Europe, and we also have the ability to run uh, what we call the private instances. So maybe someone on premises, someone on Azure, someone on AWS, and people depend on this. So this this needs to work. And from a, a more or a product perspective, we we valued lots of things. Right initially, Yotsido was a great way of getting your users authenticated and you could do some uh, other things through our early extensibility which allow you to run custom code so, so it was a, an early version of serverless where you would run custom node.js as part of your authentication pipeline imagine something like whenever a user logs in for the first time i want to create a sales for lead something like that which might be a business rule for one customer but not everyone uh, but then, of course, we, we had lots of investment there. We we spent, again, we, we include our accessibility pipeline a lot to create like better isolation, reduce latency. We introduce features like MFA, role-based authentication, support for new protocols, new identity providers. We, we increase our, our ability to scale. So there, there are lots of things that change over the past few years as, as far as the product goes. Okay. Um, Talk to, can you just break down actually how the product might work? So maybe why customers would buy your product. I obviously understand from a from a login perspective, you don't need to do a sales job on us necessarily, um, but just understanding it maybe for some users or audience who haven't used the product before, just so they can relate to that. I, I think the, the simplest way to explain this is, Anything related to security is hard. And any time where you're implementing login functionality, you are dealing with security, uh, whether because you're storing uh, usernames and passwords or email and passwords yourself, either because you are trying to get the protocol right to connect to an identity provider to get social credentials from Google. So you don't want to do that. You should be spending as much time as you can building your application. And that's also our philosophy at Otsido, right? Uh, in the in the early days, we didn't have the money to, to buy things. So we, we ended up building some of those. But as we got a bit more funding, we, we started having more of a, a build, a buy over build philosophy. If you, if you always keep building things yourself, you are not putting as much as you can in, in your core. And the good thing about that is that by delegating that to Otsido, you don't have to hire security experts. You don't have to get into the details of how this whole identity thing works. And at the same time, you get a lot of features for free so that maybe, yeah, you, you had an initial investment. You had done your initial estimate and you said, I'm, I'm going to build this myself. But as engineers, we are very bad at estimating, which means that that's probably not going to be uh, as much as you need or it's not going to have some of the features you need or it's going to take you longer than you need. And that's why buying is a lot better. We typically overestimate our ability to build. Okay. Uh, culturally, just going back to that evolution part, um, it seems as if founders have this real technical vision. Security is a passion. What what cultural messages have stuck with the business or changed through the business, whether that's product or engineering what stands out i think uh security reliability essentially what we call trust and then we actually group these into a, a trust notion are, are the key things to what we do um, what we are selling as a business is trust if otsiru is down our customers applications are typically down. Yeah, there might be specific cases where someone might already have a credential, they don't need to come back to us. But we are business critical. It's it's not something where, oh, we, some specific emails are not being sent for some promos. We are not tracking stats. We are the beginning of the journey for our customers and users, which means that making sure that Otsiru is up is fundamental making sure that as we get more customers we can keep up with their scale is great is key and at the same time we want to keep our customers data safe our customers end user data safe and private right we don't want to ask for more than we need and those are things that we consider in everything we build 
Okay. Uh, I was going to ask this a little bit further down the line, but it's massively relevant now. How do you ensure you keep your users up, as you say? Like, how do you ensure that availability and resiliency for your customers? That's, that's an interesting question. That's something we, we think about a lot. And, and there are many dimensions to that problem. The, the main thing, of course, is you want to minimize the probability that there are issues. And you also, whenever there are issues, and it's important to understand that there will be, like you are always trying to minimize that, you are doing lots of things to prevent them. But you need to accept that some of them will occur and you need to ensure that whenever they happen, they are of the smallest blast radius as possible and that they last as little as possible. And that, that's where we have a lot of techniques, right? Like we, we have our own testing and staging environments where we run things before we roll changes out. We have a lot of automated testing. We roll out changes based on what we call... Um, tier or, or customer environment criticality. So maybe we have some environments where some customers that are on the free tier with lower SLAs get their changes first, and then we start rolling that out to environments with higher SLAs. And that's more on the how do we prevent things from, from going bad perspective. At the same time, in terms of thinking about blast radius, there are many things that we do. Um, Otsiru is deployed in what we call uh, environments, and these are, for example, you have environments, uh, an environment in Australia, an environment in Europe. We have a couple of environments in the US. And there are a number of reasons why we need to have environments. Some of them are related to data sovereignty, which means some of the customers from Australia want their user data to just be there. They don't want that to be taken out of there. Same thing from Europe. Um, but another big reason is blast radius. If, if you have these separate environments and they are completely isolated and you can roll out changes differently to each of these environments, any issue related to a change is only contained to that environment. So that, that talks about the blast radius. At the same time, uh, you can get different customers into each of these environments, which has different loads. So kind of you're sharding your customers, which makes your scale better. And all of those things are there to help ensure that if an incident were to occur, the incident would be as self-contained as possible. And then there are, of course, the, the usual techniques that you, you hear about a lot, right? You, you hear about like blue-green deployments. That's basically a technique that's used so that you get immutable infrastructure, which reduces the probability of errors because you don't have a previous state that you depend on when you're making that change. And at the same time, if you do that right, if you do that immutable infrastructure the right way, rolling back to a previous version is very fast. So if an error were to occur, you can go back. Uh, there are lots of techniques we use to do shadow deployments so that people don't even see the effect of some of the changes that we do. And we, we have kind of a, a testing mode where we are learning, hey, is this change going to work whenever we roll it out? That's something that we use in general a lot for uh, changes that are uh, related to item potent features, basically reads or some writes where... <clears throat> implementing or running an, uh, an action a couple of times doesn't change the result, so that's very useful. And again, there, there's lots of other things like that. We, we try to be very uh, aware of when, when we're making changes to, to consider all of these factors. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you potentially, is, is that, no, is testing included in how you assess your blast radius or are there steps that you take or precautions that you take to look at what a blast radius could be? Testing is included, but a lot of this is caught even before testing when we think about how we design the system. There are things that if you don't design from the beginning to reduce that blast radius, even testing will only tell you that they are there, but it won't be able to prevent them. In some ways, and, and this is an, an interesting notion, like going towards services, microservices, this, this FAD in the industry, again, it has some positive benefits because you go and, and you have the possibility of getting teams to deploy with their own cadence, to release independently. So that's great from, from that velocity perspective. 
but with velocity, not in the agile turn, more often like, hey, you can deliver value faster, maybe yeah. reducing cycle time is better. Um, but when you think about that, you can also use that to create a better, more reliable design. By, by separating parts, you can say, hey, this part that requires higher reliability will need this different set of infrastructure, this different set of constraints. It might need more failovers, more, more redundancy than this other service that requires less. And there are a couple of interesting things there. For example, we, as many other companies, come from the monolith uh, where we started and, and we're slowly moving to services. I wouldn't say microservices. I would say services in our case. And that transition, it's, it's very clear. Right? In the early beginnings with the monolith, any part failing, any part consuming more memory, any part having an encore exception means the process crashes, right? Yeah, you can recover fast from that, etc. But any request that you were processing uh, there means, well, all of them fail, which yeah. means that you need to start minimizing how many requests you actually process per process. Um, that's that's not what you want to plan for. It's very hard to alert in, in the monolith. Who owns a particular feature? Who should be waking up at 2 a.m. when something's failing? So the, there's lots of things where like some of this decoupling is very beneficial. And, and that's what you do, right? You try to design the system in a way that failure domains are contained. If I have a separate database, yes, these two databases in the cloud can definitely fail at the same time, but it's less likely that they do. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I've been having more and more conversations with companies. And to be fair, they're probably more at, um, the startup phase naturally where they're getting so much more benefit from a monolith and not thinking about moving to microservices until way, way, way down the line. Talk, talk to us a little bit about what SRE means to, means to you uh, and introducing that philosophy mindset into your teams and how actually you maybe set up that philosophy or team. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so SRE is a fairly overloaded term in, in, in the industry, and that's not yeah. necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just, I think it's a fact. The the way we got started with it at Otsido was, I, again, this was around 20... 18 maybe with that specific philosophy where we wanted to to make a dedicated investment to reliability we in 2016 2017 we had started this again move fast break nothing mentality but we realized hey we can do more and i think a bit earlier we the, the sre book from google had come out um it was interesting because when you read the job postings back in the day and, and you read the SRE book, these were fairly different. So we said, hey, what if we could do what we do for our security team? We have a dedicated security team. Those are people that are security experts. They write tools. They provide guidance. They work with teams to improve security, but do the same thing for reliability. And we realized that we already had some people at the company that kind of were doing that, right? Um, they were very good at writing software. They had very good notions about um, systems design, about even infrastructure. And, and that meant that we, we had the people, but we just weren't putting that, them in that position. And the way we thought about it is, if, if you look at again what, what Google does, and, and ever since then, we, we have had the the privilege of being able to work from people from there. And, and it's very interesting to learn what things are actually applicable to all teams at Google and what things are more of a, yeah, well, it's not really like that. Um, okay. But there's a spectrum of, of SRE. There's software SRE, there's systems SRE. And, and we have had a lot of success putting teams of software SRE together that are software engineers that are very good at automating, creating um, infrastructure and working with it but that they can go on and spend a lot of time writing application service code as part of the product to make it more reliable okay all right um what what do you think yes i know you've just explained um there's probably different parts or moving parts to software sre system sre 
what what would you say is the skill set that you would look for in someone? Like you said, it's a bit of a fad, but if you are looking at that style of person, what do you think is expected of that person or what skills do you think they might need? I don't know if they need a skill when they start. I think they need to want to get the, the skills. Um, and that's very important. Like none of the people that we started with that on that SRE team had been SREs before. They What they were good at was learning about things very fast. They had an interest in creating reliable systems. And, and that's something... Like the, the interest is not something you can teach. Maybe you can encourage it a bit. But there are some people that like to create features. There are some people that like to create great designs. And there are people that actually want to want things to stay up, basically. And if if people want things to stay up, there's again, there's lots of literature, there's lots of things that you can do. Um and and they will do a lot of things to learn from that. Like they go read the books, they they spend a lot of time figuring out why a particular alert isn't the best alert because it, it's waking them up at night. They will spend time figuring out why we are consuming a lot of CPU on a particular service and, and that's causing restarts. And, and those are the skills that you eventually end up gaining because you just have that craving for keeping things up and, and that's what you like. Uh, so I'd say, yeah, the people that can learn very fast that understand how computers work and maybe they don't know one language or the other language yet they don't know one particular technology but they they can get up to date very fast on that because they understand the underlying concepts and and principles um i I think those are the things that i would look for and that's those are the things that we look for when when we look for people to join those uh, sre like teams okay Um, tooling for engineers has become a bit of a thing as well over the last couple of years um there, there are a lot of people, I think, that will be listening to this that that's fairly new for them to build tools for, for other engineers in teams, almost like having internal stakeholders at times. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, dev tooling and the leverage teams can get from that? This is something we, we started considering the value very early on at Otsido. Um we had kind of like internal tooling teams ever since like yeah 2015 i think where like mm-hmm. there would be some people working on maybe improving a, dev, a local dev environment or, or creating some tools to, to make dependency tracking between like projects uh github projects when you send the pr easier so we, we had some ideas around that and in and today that's evolved into what we, we know as the, the platform part of, of our engineering organization and this is something that many organizations today building software are doing, where, where you have a set of teams that are thinking about cross-cutting concerns, right? The uh, networking and the observability and the storage aspects and the deployments, the ICD story. And that's what we do today. We have uh, teams that take care of all of that and, and they provide the building blocks so that other teams can do their product development work easier. Uh, and faster at the same time. And, and these are the teams that are building, for example, our deployment tooling, our CI tooling. They are the teams that are building uh, support for automatically deploying databases and keeping the backups up to date. So you you go more from a, you build it, you run it, to you build it using internal products and, and you run it. Uh, and that notion of having in, an internal product is very important. And, and you want people on those platform teams to feel a strong sense of, of service, right? You're not just there building something that is cool or is good to build, but also you're building for others. Okay. Um, and and does, it, does it add value? Of course, product teams feel um, their value, but does what they build add value? do you think yes i think when when built successfully it definitely does i think it's very easy to to go out on tangents right because that value takes a while to be able to be measured and at the same time because there are so many things happening there oh should i use this new technology oh should i use kubernetes operators to get this thing done and 
it's very easy to get kind of bogged down into into the implementation details and, and the new things. But when you do, and, and this is what we're seeing now, it makes a lot of things a lot simpler because all teams are using the same technology. This means that when you move from one team to the other, it's easier to transition. It means that you take advantage of economies of scale because when you implement an improvement, it works better for everyone, right? So we, we are making improvements to our CD. That means that everyone's deployment becomes 20% faster and, and you don't need to make exceptions. And at the same time, teams can focus on what they're good at. And so the team that knows about how to make observability better creates the tools for others. But the team that's working on improving our authentication pipeline doesn't need to care about that. They just include the necessary dependencies, configure the right things, and, and they become more efficient. And there's always something else to do. That's that's another good thing there. Like There are lots of things that are happening in the industry around development tooling and platform teams. Okay. Um, you guys seem pretty ahead of the curve, you know, uh, introducing concepts from 2015. You know, I'm I'm starting to hear over the last 12, 18 months about developer experience and dev tooling and these sorts of things. And you've introduced and embraced these concepts over the last, uh, you know, I heard 2018 in there at points, two to five years, let's say. Oh, what other forward-thinking initiatives might not be forward-thinking to you? I appreciate that because obviously you may have introduced this, but what other initiatives do you introduce maybe to get teams working quicker, more efficiently, like some of this tooling or the dev experience and other things? Um, I So one of the things that, again... As you said, I don't think these were necessarily forward thinking, not because we did them, but because these were ideas that, that we saw some of the other companies that we were aspiring to be like too, right? We, a lot of the things that we do at Otsido, we think, hey, what can we do to, to learn from others? And, and back in the day, again, when we started, you had, when you think about uh, developers, you had Heroku, you had uh, Twilio, you had Stripe. And all of those companies were, were doing similar things. Um, see, like having fast deployment and continuous deployment was another thing that, again, you can track back to like 2009, 2010, when, when Flickr started talking about that. But from day one, Otsilo deployed multiple times a day. Uh, there was a period that because of some internal changes that, that was changed, we decided, hey, let's wait a bit less often. Turns out, not a good idea. Um, you do want to do that. Uh, but that was another key thing. Being able to deploy frequently, out, always automated, fast, that's key. Um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out what other things we've done. Um, another thing we did fairly early was we started automating how we generate the docs from our code. Uh, so you'd basically take a schema that, that had the documentation and the validation for, for our API and that would automatically generate a swagger that then you could just get into documentation, which was very positive. So we, we tried to take advantage of, of those opportunities to, to see how automation could help. And hindsight, you could always have done more, uh, but we, we always had that mindset of if you can automate it, you probably should. Nice. Okay. Um, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe um, scalability uh, over the last seven, eight years and maybe how you've seen, and you spoke about design earlier on here um, and designing for reliability, maybe how how do you design for scale and how's that changed over the course of you being an engineer or zero? There's There's been a, a lot of change. Um, again, in the, in the first like two, two years, three years maybe, you you didn't see a lot of need for that. Not because it wasn't important, but the scale that our customers had, because you're again you're growing as a company. It, it wasn't small. It was like maybe 500, 1, 1K RPS uh, for authentication transactions, which is not little, but at the same time, it's it's not as close to what we need to handle for, for some customers today. And... At that point, we, you could handle that relatively easily. You could say, hey, I just need this to run. I, I need authentication transactions to run. I just need 
more instances of the monolith. I need uh, I need the right database indexes to to be there, and this works. Uh, I remember there were a couple of very interesting anecdotes. Uh, once we were troubleshooting uh, an on-premises deployment for the customer, and and we couldn't figure out what was uh, what wasn't working. We saw that like the indexes were right, the setup was right. Turns out they weren't using SSDs. This was again 20, 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. It was the, the team that managed the hardware was a different team than the one that managed the, their Auxilio deployment. So it was very very hard to get those SSDs set up. Uh, so it, it's the small things. Um, like we, we, we learned early on, for example, hey, it's very important to have the journal in the database separate from the, the data disk because of, again, IO contention and how they have different flash records, etc. Um, then over the years, you start having to change some of those things and, and this philosophy of, okay, we're going to shard our customers in, in this notion of environments. And that's one thing that you can do because Auxilio customers want data sovereignty, data locality, right? They want their users to be in a particular region. And this is very different from what you see in other types of services. If you think about the social network, they don't have that. Like any user can interact with any other user. They can send message to anyone. So they, they require more of a global design. And in our case, we don't. We, we just need that local environment to be consistent, to be fast. Uh, but you start introducing as much as you can of eventually consistent notions, uh, getting some things uh, off, off of that synchronous track to events. So what are these things that we can eventually uh, write or eventually read that we don't need consistency on. You start looking at what things you can cache, um, making sure that whenever there's something that happens, you you minimize consumption, right? For example, logging is something that you always have to do. So investing in making sure that you get logging right is is very important. Uh, And in general, understanding that you're not going to get it right the first time. The main bottleneck is is probably going to be state. So investing in being able to partition that state accordingly in, in general by uh, in, in services, you would call it bounded context is, is very valuable. Understanding what are the bounded contexts that, that are the most used. At Opsido, it's users and sessions, right? That Those those yeah. things that grow linearly with, with your product's use. Whereas if you think of something like the configuration of identity providers, it's not very big and, and you don't care necessarily about scaling that aspect. Okay, uh, smart. The uh, well, smart. It works um, that you shard into regional, uh, sorry, regional locations. Uh, that works for you. Good. Maybe there are people listening um, who that's an idea for. What What are some challenges that I think you or what are challenges that you face at the moment technically that have been tough to crack let's put it this way over the last couple of years any that spring to mind most of the challenges that spring to mind are are not necessarily technical they they are more about the people aspect of of getting those technical decisions done which is i I always think about that and and it's interesting um the main challenge of what we're doing is getting the security aspects right and understanding the balance between security and, and UX. And, and that's what we have been focusing on as a business for, for the past few years, getting MFA to be prompted at the right time and, and thinking about bond detection and anomaly detection and what does a bad login look like. Um, even though those, those things are things that we are still investing on, they are not necessarily complex to grasp. I can explain to you, hey, like there are botnets and, and they are attacking you. And even if you don't have exactly the best implementation of how to stop them, you, that's a problem that you can iterate on. I think that the main, the main thing that has held us back over the, the, the years is as we continue to grow, how, aligning on, on how that growth should occur. How should we continue to scale for the next three years what is the right design and getting all of the parties involved because in in many cases and, and this is something that I've, I've been working on for the past year in order to to scale in order to scale as a company in terms of 
software, and, and that doesn't just mean, hey, I can handle more load. It means with the same amount or a bit more of engineers, I can handle maybe twice as many customers, right? That famous sublinear growth that, that everyone wants to achieve. You need to, to become a lot leaner, and that means you need to reduce complexity. And, and as a business, that's hard. It's very interesting. Uh, a couple of days ago, there was a new, a new story from New Relic where they finally changed their pricing model. They finally changed all of their plans, and now they're not going to charge per host. They're not going to charge uh, for APM. They're going more into observability because of the marketing term. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for a small subset of people to convince the company that that's, that's the direction. And, and we have had some of those same challenges where it's very hard to get, again, in our case today, 600 people, back in the day, 400 people to understand this thing that we're doing is great today, but if we're looking two years from now, it will cost us. And, and in software, it's very hard to quantify opportunity cost, how much it, it costs not to, to do that thing or to, to do that thing and what are you giving up, and, and the cost of unknowns. If, if you're not doing something, that, those are things that you can't A-B test because you can't replay exact same thing doing it and not doing it. Um, and, and I think that's where most of the challenges come from, okay. ensuring that you're doing only as much as you need and not more. That's, that's an interesting challenge. How, how do you have those conversations? You, you talk about risk versus reward. How do you have those conversations? Who takes ownership of those decisions? It, it depends on the level, uh, right? If this is something that uh, you are talking to a particular team about, you, you would go to what we call the triad, the, the tech lead, the, the, the product manager. And, and if this is a big decision that spans a number of years, that would go more towards, again, product leadership, engineering leadership. I, I've been, I had the opportunity to try to lead some of those conversations, not from the decision-making perspective, more from the, hey, I have this idea perspective. And, and it takes a lot of time because you, you first start to explain your idea. Hey, I, I see kind of this thing. I, I see we could do this other thing. And you need to figure out, hey, is there, is there an audience here? Are they listening to what I'm saying? Is this the right time? If there is, then you can start spending some time digging deeper, getting some specific data, going to talk to some of the people that, that are also going to be part of that decision. And, and finally, it, it gets to a point where you have generated enough, enough traction that the people that actually can make the decision, that the people that should be going to get that data are tasked to do so. And, and it takes a while It's because that's, again, if, you, if you're working in, in this quarter and you, you don't have the, the staffing, especially as, as an individual contributor to go uh, convince those people, it, it takes a while to say, hey, this other director of product might need to go spend some time looking at this idea that actually changes how these 16 teams operate. Yeah. Well, and what's, fascinate, what's fascinating for me, I think, understanding you guys a little bit more um, is you guys are remote first. Okay. So um, we see that more and more now with COVID. And understanding how conversations need to happen online and starting online, how have you been able to build those or that, that rapport, that camaraderie, those really serious conversations? How have you been able to build that over time? There'll be people listening in the audience that, will need some of that right now or will need some guidance or advice. How have you done that really well? The, the key for us, I think, was that we, we started working remotely and, and that's been the way engineering has worked for forever since we started. It, we've never been in the situation where one team had one person remote, two people remote, and maybe seven, eight people in an office. And that means that naturally, because of the culture, conversations need to happen in a remote-friendly manner. This means in many cases, 
they happen async, either in a pull request review, in an RFC review, in, in Slack. And at the same time, if there's a meeting, you try to make sure that people from all time zones are going to be in that Zoom meeting. Uh, you record those so that if someone couldn't attend, you they can always uh, see it. So it's it's having that mindset of asynchrony in mind. And then from, from a people perspective, uh, again, another thing that we, we did from the early days was the one-on-ones, which were, again, something we were reading. Hey, the industry is doing lots of these. So we've been doing weekly one-on-ones. The manager gets together with people, uh, even if, again, non-managers get together with other people to kind of continue building those relationships whenever we can. Again, this is not something that's happening right now because of, of covid we do team offsites, uh, so maybe once a year or, or a couple of times a year, a particular team gets together in one place to work on something, and that creates a kind nice. of rapport and, and a good relationship. And the same thing for a company offsite, which we, we except for this year, we've always done. Uh, we everyone from the company meets once a year, so you, you take all of these things where sometimes you meet in person, you have the one-on-ones, and at the same time working on a problem together in similar circumstances where everyone's remote creates that camaraderie and, and it works well. And of course, hiring, like that's the key, right? You need to hire people that want to do that. Uh, we have had people that like the notion of working remotely, but they actually didn't like working remotely and working in isolation. And that's fine, but it's not going to lead to a happiness working at Otsiru. I can see that will be a pattern at some point. The more conversations that I'm having is I think a lot of people would quite like a hybrid model. That's what they're calling it at the moment. Uh, That mix between being office-based or having a satellite office or HQ and being remote work. Uh, What I have seen for some companies that have adopted this remote model is before COVID, like yourself, They've started remote, and it's worked really, really well for them. So good for you guys. Good for you guys. Go on. No, I, I think, again, it definitely can work. Uh, we see lots of companies doing this, right? Like there's Otsido, uh, I, um, Automatic, GitLab. There's, there's lots of very large companies. Again, like yes, not... Google, Microsoft large, but very large companies doing this. So it it does show that they can be successful. Um, It's important to kind of go all in. You you can't kind of half go into remote because you won't be successful. Yeah. Okay. Um, Recent funding, which is obviously great. What does that mean for you guys over the next well, let's just say it's a 12, 24-month runway, whether it's product or tech, that you can talk to us about. Don't share any secrets that you can talk to us about. Um, so we're, again, whenever there's funding, there's there's money to go around. So bud- budgets typically increase a bit. And from a, a product delivery perspective, uh, we're, we're going to invest it on, as, as I mentioned earlier, a bit on that um, balance between UX and security. How do you provide as frictionless of an experience for users as you can while keeping their account safe? So that's a big area of investment for us. Um, There's a new kind of feature that we're working on. I I can't get into a lot of details around that. That's going to be uh, shipped hopefully uh, early next year that we're, we're heavily investing on and, and that should make it a lot easier to build a certain type of, of application using Otsido for, for a certain uh, type of company. And, and we're also looking at our extensibility story and, and how we can continue to improve it because the more we, we grow as, as a product, a very interesting cycle happens, which is our existing extensibility points allow us to discover what customers want and we feed that into the product so that they don't even have to write code to extend it, which is great. And at the same time, you see that there are more things that they would like to be able to extend and do differently 
and we're always looking at ways in, in which we can allow them to do that. So that's another area that we're going to be looking at. Okay. Uh, your your extensibility, is that customizable per per customer? Can they that log a request and that gets fed through? Yes. Uh, essentially, there are events that happen through the pipeline of, of an authentication, let's say, uh, before the user logs in, after the user logs in, and, and, a, and a couple of other things. And you essentially have a contract where you write a JavaScript function that gets a certain set of parameters. You can do IO, or you, you literally write Node.js, and you can do anything you want there. You can call home to your own APIs. You can call another API. Uh, some of the stages allow you to, for example, uh, reject the, the step. So if you are saying, hey, I want to check this thing in my system and under certain conditions, I want to not authorize access, you can do that. Um, so it's completely arbitrary. It's not like you're writing partial uh, rules or you have a DSL or you have config. This is, you can write code. And what, what, what are the hard parts of authorization that you found? There are, well, so this is where it's, if it's just authorization, you're talking about, can someone do this? And I would say that the hard part there is that every business has very different rules for that. Because the typical notions are, you, you, you hear, oh, uh, I have a user and they have groups. And those groups might have roles associated with them but users might also have roles. And then users have permissions. And, and that's kind of like the high-level notion of that. That's what you saw in, in the operating systems that maybe uh, like when you look at the security settings for files. And that works up to a certain point. Um, for a lot of companies, when you're thinking about like very relatively static models, um, that means that our customers have to go model that right, and, and that works. And if you think about some of the protocols from the perspective of the protocol, the, the credential only has the permission. And um, there's a very good blog post that uh, Vittorio Vertocci, he's a principal architect at Zero, recently wrote, which shows that if you have a static world that works, but we, we live in a more dynamic world nowadays where you have applications like GitHub, Google Docs, all of those things where what was referred to as a resource is created dynamically, right? A resource can be a document in, in the Google Docs case, a resource can be a repository in the GitHub case. And essentially as a centralized system that manages identities, do you also manage permissions to, to all of those resources? And if so, that means that for every call to a customer's API, they need to call to Otsido. Should that be a decentralized component that they have? Um, so th there are this, these very interesting things that happen in this, uh, what we call like fine grain authorization world that are harder because the centralized model has a lot of advantages, but has some disadvantages in, in terms of latency and in terms of synchronization. And of course, the decentralized model has some of the disadvantages in terms of who wants it? Because am I asking a customer to run it? Then it's no longer SaaS. Is, is that a partial component? Um, so that's that's a very interesting area. Nice. Okay. Um, I think I think you've covered off some some excellent parts for us. That's that's a really decent insight into authorization and some challenges or thinking points. Uh, we've covered off SRE, um, some resilience resiliency and some reliability approaches from you guys. Some dev tooling. It, is there anything that you would share, I, I actually really like asking this question, is there anything that you would share to an earlier Damien in his career or you would share to someone else coming into their career some learning points that you can help people apply to? Um, I, I think one of the things I've done throughout my career is I've had the privilege to be able to optimize for learning. That means that I didn't have to, I, I've been working uh, for a while. I started uh, like right after high school, but I never had to make decisions just for money, which meant that I could be picky about what to do next. 
and optimizing for learning, especially if you have a passion for that and a passion for, for our industry, is very useful and it does pay off. Uh, so as, as, as today's Damien, it's very good to be able to tell past Damien, hey, that works out, because sometimes you're not sure about those things. Um, so I would say that if you can do it, I, I would recommend it. Keeping that, that passion, that fire alive, like w- what originally got you here, in my case, it was that. It was learning, being able to solve hard problems, and, and I've been able to make career decisions based on that, and, and they are they have been positive so far. We've got a really interesting podcast that will come out over the next couple of weeks in regards to uh, continually looking at learning. So a um, lovely lady, Yagita, um, she actually helped us understand how can engineers apply themselves to interviews, to learning? And she's phenomenal. Um, she was actually talking about introducing a number of hours per day, um, which is a lot. Uh, but I think it's it's how do you create a consistency framework to be able to learn? Uh, I like your point there. You could optimize for learning. Um, you had a choice. It was really great for you that you didn't have to go money focused. I always say that to people as well. Look at what you can learn quick. Invest yourself into it. Create that consistency framework where you can keep on doing that. That's what I think. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that podcast to, to listen to it when it comes out. I'll send it across. Um, you've been an absolute pleasure. There, there's going to be some massively um, insightful pieces for like I've mentioned before, dev tooling, SRE, and the other points, um, building a remote culture and scaling a business. You know, I, I really do appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Um, if AuthZero can share this, great. You know, we'll be sharing it on our platforms. Engineers, come like us on YouTube, Twitter, all of the other channels. Come and share it. Damon, you've been an absolute star. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you on soon. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, Massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.